Well, good morning again to everyone, and uh, welcome to Bethlehem. It's, it's great that you're here. Um, if you're someone who's watching online today, um, welcome to you as well. It's pretty cool to, to see how our online reach continues to grow, uh, which is, believe me, nothing about Bethlehem. It's all about the opportunity for more people to hear about Jesus and uh, the wonderful things that he has done for us. Um, do we have any Star Wars fans in the house today? If you are, kind of raise your hand a little bit. Okay. That's exactly what I thought because wherever there are people, there are Star Wars fans, right? And uh, the Star Wars series is kind of that one of those iconic um, phenomenons that at this point has spanned generations, really, and, and, is, and is sure to be around for a while yet. Here's how I know that. Because Disney paid a whole lot of money for the franchise, and they're going to want to get their, their money's worth out of it by producing more movies. In fact, did you know that the next Star Wars-related movie is coming out in May? Did you know that? All right, it's, it's uh, going to be the backstory on that lovable pilot of the Millennium Falcon. His name is Han Solo, huh? Now, I don't know a lot about uh, what we're going to find out about his backstory in the movie, but here's what I do know. Um, I know a little bit of an interesting backstory to the man that you see on uh, the screen, um, Harrison Ford, who played the first and to this point only Han Solo. You see, Harrison Ford had been, um, has been a household name in Hollywood for a really long time at this point. But it wasn't always that way. In fact, in the 1960s is when he originally moved from the Midwest to California. And he had a really, really hard time catching on. In fact, after about a decade in California, he wondered whether he had what it took to be an actor and to make that his career. And so Harrison Ford, maybe some of you know this, Harrison Ford took on a part-time job as a carpenter to make ends meet. And so there was a lot of times over a long time frame that instead of acting on movie sets, he was working on movie sets. And then one day in the late 1970s, he was working on a carpentry job uh, in a movie studio. And a guy named George Lucas asked Harrison Ford, the carpenter, to read some lines for an upcoming space movie that he was directing. And the rest, as they say, is history. Now, this connects with what we're going to be talking about today from God's Word. And let, let me tell you what we're not going to be talking about. We're not going to be talking about what do you do when you become a really famous actor and make millions and millions of dollars. That's, that's not what we're going to be focusing on because, quite frankly, it's going to relate that would to, like, none of us. But instead, here's where our focus is going to be. We're going to talk about what is it like to go to California to, to have dreams, to have goals, and to seemingly the best that you have to offer doesn't seem to be good enough. In fact, it's uh, our first fill-in for today. 
the best you have to offer doesn't always seem to be good enough. Is, is Harrison Ford the only one that's felt that way? Whether it's at school, on the court, in your marriage, at your job, in your church, with your friends, and on and on and on, you have at some point in your life, maybe for most of your life, felt this way. That the best you have to offer doesn't seem to be good enough. When you've been really working hard towards your goals... But what you had envisioned doesn't seem to be panning out. When you're using your gifts to the utmost, but it just seems like the gifts that you have and what you can bring to the table is not going to accomplish that which you would like. And the examples could go on. But we can all relate, I think, to times where the best you had to offer doesn't seem to be good enough. And... Do you know what culture tends to tell us? You know what their encouragement is at times like this? And it, by the way, it's usually by people that have made it. It's like the Harrison Fords of the world and the the Michael Jordans. I don't know whether either of those guys actually said this, but that's the, the type of person that will give us this encouragement, especially in America. When you don't feel like your best is good enough, here's what you should do. You just need to believe in yourself. Have you heard that? Just believe in yourself a little bit more and you can accomplish what? Anything. Just believe in yourself. Now, I am not saying that we shouldn't sometimes have more confidence in our abilities. In fact, I'm going to encourage you to do exactly that in just a little bit. So I'm not saying you shouldn't have confidence. I'm not saying that we could use a little boost of self-esteem every once in a while. What I am saying is, I wanted to play in the NBA. And I believed in myself, but all the belief in the world was not going to make me 6'6 with a 40-inch vertical. And so if this is what directs us, Right now, in the time where the best we have to offer doesn't seem to be good enough. If you're listening to the the vibes of the world that you just need to believe in yourself a little bit more, guess what's going to happen? You're going to always feel like a failure unless you get the part to Han Solo. And all this type of thinking does, although there's a, I already mentioned it, a glimpse of little truth to remember from this. All that really happens is to make you feel bad about yourself. I don't believe in myself enough. (laughs) We're going to look at one of Jesus' most famous miracles today. And through it, we're going to find encouragement, real encouragement, about what do you do when the best you have to offer doesn't seem to be good enough. And let me give you a little bit of context around this throughout this whole series and kind of making sure that everyone understands the timeline of Jesus' life. So we are at the beginning of his third and final year of ministry. Jesus, not only being a person but also being God, Jesus knows that his days on earth are numbered. He knows that within a year he's going to die. He's going to die on a cross. And so if, if you watch and read Jesus' last year of ministry, we see him take an even more 
specific emphasis on coaching and or leading and or directing his disciples, training them about how to lead the church and the things to remember after he has died and risen again. And so I I know that this section that we're going to look at is one of those sections that Jesus was using, one of those events that Jesus was using to train his followers and in also to train us 2,000 years later. This is a really famous miracle. It's the only miracle of Jesus found in all four biographies. And it's also actually a miracle that I've never in 15 years had a chance to preach on. So it was kind of a, a cool opportunity for me um, this week as well. So let's turn to the biography written by the disciple named Matthew about Jesus. We're going to turn to chapter 14 of that biography, beginning with verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. So, I have to give some backstory. There's this big event that happened right before this miracle. Do you remember John the Baptist, week one of our series? Um, John the Baptist was a relative of Jesus. He also happened to be the one who baptized Jesus. He also was the one prophesied in the Old Testament about someone who'd come to make a way for the Savior, prepare the way for the Savior. That was John the Baptist. Well, what we find out happened just before this miracle is that a, a crazy king in the area named Herod actually killed John the Baptist and literally put his head on a platter. There's a lot more to that story that we don't have time for. If you're interested, Matthew chapter 14, the first part, will give you a little bit more of the background on that. But what I just want to say is this, that we can understand why Jesus needed to get on a boat and go privately to a solitary place, huh? Not only did someone he loved a lot die, but lot was killed in such a horrible, reckless way. Jesus just needed some time for quiet and for thinking and for praying like he often did when he went off by himself until he gets in a boat to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We continue with um, the rest of verse 13. Hearing of this, that Jesus got on a boat and was going across the water, the crowds followed him on foot from the town. So like, you think TMZ is bad, right? So <laughs> Jesus gets on a boat, he's sailing, everyone's watching him from the shore, following him. He lands and saw a large crowd there. He got away from no one. It says he had compassion on them and healed their sick. This is a little bit of an aside, but my heart and mind sort of ruminated on this a little bit this week. You know how when it comes to the love of Jesus, the preeminent, the best example of that is looking to the cross and knowing what he suffered and went through for us. And that will always be the case. The best example of Jesus' love. But we see these little glimpses of the amazing compassion that Jesus had for people throughout his life. And this is one of them. I mean, who, who would have thought any less of Jesus when he got to the shore that he said, okay, disciples, you know what just happened to John. Just 
could you just give me some time? Could you go spend some time with the people? I'll be there in a little bit. But the amazing compassion and mercy of our Savior is something I want to point out today. Because you've had days when you've needed Jesus. You've had days where you feel like you're bothering him again. Don't ever doubt the bigness of his mercy and the bigness of his compassion. We see a little glimpse of it here. Let's continue. As evening approached, the disciples came to Jesus and said, This is a remote place. We're not near people, not near a town. And it's already getting late into the evening. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. When uh, Matthew says there was a crowd, he's not kidding. Um, I look out amongst all of you, somewhere between 100 and 200 people in here. This is a crowd. But when Jesus says a crowd, as Matthew will tell us a little bit later, he was talking 5,000 guys, 5,000 men, not to mention women and children, which we would estimate there is probably about 15 to 20,000 people there. That's not a crowd. That's a city, okay? This is the type of gathering that would surround Jesus, wanting to hear the words that he had to share, wanting to see the things that, that he could do. And as it's getting late, the disciples are getting a little bit stressed out. I don't know exactly what they're all thinking as far as maybe the people are going to start getting crabby because they haven't eaten or whatever, or they're just compassionate too. But they wanted to send the people off to go get food. And they brought that request to Jesus, verse 16. Jesus replied to them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And, and I, I thought about this, like, direction. So the disciples come with a very, like, legitimate concern. The people are hungry. They need to go get food. And, and Jesus comes at them with un- something that they would have never expected. Okay, I hear you. You give them food. He might as well have said, you build the Millennium Falcon. All right? There is no way... That they would have expected this reply. There is no way that they were going to be able to carry it out. Do you know what Jesus is doing in this moment? He's creating a situation where the best that they could bring was not going to be good enough. In fact, John, in his biography of Jesus, gives us a little more details about what happened in this exchange. John chapter 6. John writes this in this little part of the exchange. Jesus said, in fact, to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And again, the disciples have to be thinking. Either Jesus, you know, is delusional. He's, he's still, you know, he's still dealing with his... His grief over John the Baptist dying, he's not thinking straight. I mean, where are we going to get food to eat? I mean, how are we going to buy food to eat? Jesus knows how much is in the treasury. He knows how much money we have. In fact, one commentator 
uh, kind of humorously wrote this that I read this week, that Jesus also knew that the guy in charge of the treasury, Judas Iscariot, was stealing from the treasury. So they probably had less than the disciples thought in the first place, right? <laughs> Jesus knew they could not buy bread. Well, John gives us this other interesting insight as to why Jesus would respond this way. Jesus asked this only to test Philip and the disciples, for he had already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus wasn't delusional. Jesus wasn't thinking in a way that was absurd. Jesus wanted them to wrestle with a situation where the absolute best they could bring was not going to be good enough. Because in those situations, when the best you can bring is not good enough, Jesus has something to teach us, both 2,000 years ago and today. And do you know what the truth is? It's our next fill-in for today. That your deficiency can be the perfect opportunity to learn and to be taught about God's sufficiency. Your inadequacy at school, at work, in your marriage, is a fertile ground for God to show you His supremacy. Your weakness is the perfect opportunity for God to display to you his strength. He wanted the disciples to wrestle with, how am I going to do that? There's 20,000 people. How can I feed them? How can we feed them? There is no way. I don't got enough. And here's why. Because after they're all fed, after they've had to wrestle with their deficiency, there's going to be no doubt about who did this. Because if God, if Jesus was not involved, there's no way that all 20,000 people would be fed. It's not a fun place to wrestle when you're feeling deficient and inadequate. I know. I've been there. But it's a good place to be. Because on the backside of that is a firmer understanding of God's strength and God's power and how we are nothing without Him. So, Jesus sends them out among the crowd then to see how much food they could scrounge up, okay? Verse 17, back to Matthew. They did some looking. They found a boy who had some food. Here's what we have. We have five loaves and two fish. How many people? 20,000, okay. Bring them here to me, Jesus said. And you know what they did? The disciples... Catch this, because we're going to come back to it. The disciples simply brought to the situation, they simply brought to Jesus what they had. 
That's all they could do. And then what happened? Verse 19. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then Jesus gave the food to the disciples, and the disciples gave the food to the people. Next verse. And they all ate and were satisfied because a miracle happened in the distribution process. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Jesus had the power to use in his plan that which the disciples could bring, which was only five loaves and two fish. And in that lesson that Jesus is teaching the disciples that day, there is a lesson for us. I'm going to put it this way. It's, it's our third fill-in for today. That Jesus wants you to bring what you have. Not what you don't have. Not what you wish you have. Not what they bring. He wants us to be a people that simply bring that which we have to him and let Jesus do what he wants with it. But you know what the problem is? <laughs> Far too often we find ourselves complaining about what we don't have. If only I was prettier. I say that one a lot, you know. It's a, my, if only I was taller. If only I was stronger. If only I was more outgoing. If only I was a better leader. If only I was more organized. If only I was funnier. If only I was more romantic. If only he was more romantic. If only I had more financial resources at my disposal. If only I had a better job. If only I had less anxiety. And on and on and on. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't work on ourselves. Because in every single one of us, there's room to grow. I'm not saying that you don't strive for better. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that far too often we complain what we don't have and what we can't give instead of simply bringing five loaves and two fish. And I'm going to be really frank with you guys. There's only one thing that is. It's sin. If you have a mindset of going through life that you're not good enough all the time or 50% of the time or 90% of the time or even 5%, anytime we have that thought and it's directed towards God, it's sin. Uh, the Psalms tell us that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Not just the one who wrote the psalm, but all of us. And so you get it? When, when we complain, when, when we complain about that which we have, and oh, we just have so little, or we, I'm not good enough. It's like parents receiving the, the artwork that their second grader did, you know, in art class, and they bring it, and, and 
instead of saying anything good, you're like, well, that could have been better. Not hang, bring me something better if I'm going to hang it up in the fridge. Come on. We would never do that. But how often, whether it's intentional or unintentional, don't we do that with God? Embrace the gifts God has given you. You all have them. Embrace the skills God has given you. And maximize those to his glory. If you only have five loaves, bring five loaves. If you have ten, bring those. If you have two fish, bring the two fish. God will use it. Remember Moses? What did God call him to do? God called him to go to the most powerful man in the world at the time, Pharaoh of Egypt, and to bring him this message. You know all the free labor you have, the Israelite slaves? Will you please let them go? <laughs> it, was a, it was a big ask by God, let's, let's make no mistake. And, and what, was, what was Moses' response? Remember what Moses said? Um, I'm not pretty, no, it's not I'm not pretty enough. It's, I, I don't speak well enough. I'm a stutterer, and I can't get complete sentences out of my mouth. How am I going to speak to him? But then after a little bit of arm twisting and chastisement from God, Moses brought what he had. And what happened? Pharaoh let the people go. Because God used what Moses had. Remember David? Remember the big guy, 10 feet tall, would have made the NBA? Goliath. Someone needed to step up and to slay this giant. And David steps up. You know what he did? He just brought what he had. Well, they, they tried to put armor on him. He was too small and weak, and he's like, all right, I'm not going to wear this. What I got are five stones in this sling. And God used what he had and what he brought and slayed Goliath. The 12 disciples are an example of this. Like ragtag group of fishermen and ex-tax collectors who had no power, no money, nothing. And yet we've got 2,000 years later, like churches still named after them. Why? Because they were so great? No, because God used what they had. And on and on and on. Jesus wants you to bring what you have and who you are. Now, there, there's one last thing that I really need to make sure you, you take away from this message uh, so as to not go out with the wrong idea, okay? God is not teaching us through this miracle that when you bring what you have, Goliath is going to fall. That when you bring what you have, you're going to become Han Solo. That when you bring what you have, there's going to be miracles that go on all over the place. He is not teaching us that. And maybe it would help to go back to the disciples on that day of the miracle. I'm going to reread verse 19. It goes like this. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves, Jesus did. Then he gave the food to the disciples 
And the disciples gave the food to the people. Now, the interesting thing I thought about this week, which, you know, none of you have time to think about this kind of stuff, but I'm a pastor, so I kind of get paid to do that, which is kind of fun, actually. Um, But the thing I thought about is no one knows exactly how this miracle happened. I, I read all four accounts. It does not tell us. So, like, for instance, did Jesus give all 12 disciples a basket? with some food and fish in it, or bread and fish. And then they went around giving it to how many people? Uh, 20,000 people. Okay, just to be clear. And every time they reached in, like, Jesus just had more food on the bottom. I I told you, you never thought about this before, did you? Um, Or did it happen where he sent them each out with a basket that was filled to overflowing? Twelve baskets go out would never, ever in 12 baskets be able to to feed 20,000 people. They empty their basket, and then they come back to the supplier, and and he refills their basket, and they keep doing that until it's all done. I do not know. But here's what I do know. When they first took a step towards feeding 20,000 people with 12 baskets, They were, in part, going on faith and trusting Jesus with the outcome, weren't they? I don't know what the outcome will be when you bring what you have. But what I do know is you have one you can trust the outcome to. See, Jesus, God, is someone who doesn't always do what's expected or what people want. And all the time that works out better for people. See, after this miracle on a budget, or this dinner on a budget, get my theme straight. After this dinner on a budget, Jesus' popularity was an all-time high. And if you would have done a straw poll of the 20,000 people that day and would have asked them, Would you prefer that Jesus die within a year? Not a single one would have said yes to that. They would have been like, no, we want Jesus to stick around. He's our bread supplier. He heals our sicknesses. He has the power to give us success in better homes. And if that had been the case, that Jesus would have given them the outcomes that the group would have wanted in that moment... Guess what would have happened? 2,000 years later, those well-fed, healthy, rich people would be dead and not a one in heaven. (laughs) But Jesus often does what no one would choose in the moment because in the long run, he knows that is absolutely best. See, if there was some way to raise all 20,000 people from the dead, like if we could do that and we could just pull them again, Like, now, looking back on the situation, would you prefer that Jesus died within a year? Or would you prefer for him to be your bread supplier? Every single one, when faced with their mortality and with the prospect of eternity, would choose Jesus to die. If that meant life eternal. See, the outcome we're looking for 
may not be the best outcome. That happens. Sometimes God does things greater than we could imagine. People came to the tomb on Easter morning. You think the outcome is what they expected? Empty tomb means by faith in Jesus, our tombs will be empty someday as well. We have an awesome God, guys, who knows way better what we need than anyone else. And here's the thing. It's our last filling. Bring what you have. Trust Jesus with outcomes. Isn't it relieving, isn't it a relief that you, you don't have to, to be someone you're not, but that God just calls you to bring what you have? I think it also takes some pressure off to know that my plans may not always be the best plans, and all I need to do is to trust that Jesus will make it right, will do what's best. You might be a famous actor someday. You may not. You may make the basketball team. You might not. You might have the perfect house. Who's kidding? You'll always find something wrong with it. You know, as I was thinking about how to end this message, um, you heard we got a lot of, we've gotten a lot of snow lately. Yeah. I, uh, I was thinking about the snow removal um, last night, and um, I thought I'd try something new. So I knew I had to get up early for church, and so I thought, okay, here's what I'll do. I will, before I go to bed, put the shovel in my driveway, and hopefully in the morning, all the snow will be gone. Right, right. Well, surprise no one. It didn't work so well. The snow was all there. You, you know why that is? Because this is just an instrument. And it does not do anything or move anything without someone taking it in his hands or hers. And use it. Do you get it? So often we think we're the owner and we got our hands on life and we got our hands on the future. And the truth is we're the shovel. All chipped and cracked and rusted. But you're in good hands. And God is going to use you. Maybe not to clear the driveway in the way you thought you would, but in the way that he sees best. And so, just bring what you have. And know that God will use you. It's a big test. Don't not study. But after you have studied, bring what you have. Pray the Lord to help you. If it's your career, bring what you have. Work hard. If it's your future,
goals, bring what you have. Just know that you are in the hands of the Lord. You know, the best that we have to offer may not always be good enough in terms of the plans that we have. But with the Lord, the best we have to offer is exactly what he wants for us. He can use it, and he will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the, the many gifts that are represented in this room. Lord, if only we see ourselves more the way you see us. Yes, sinful, but washed clean by Christ. Yes, not perfect with every gift, but gifted the way you would want us gifted. And Lord, may we do less complaining, and may we instead just bring what we have. If that's five loaves and two fish, let's, let's just bring that. And may we trust that you will use it. May we bring what we have and trust you without cost. In Jesus' name.